It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer. We're recording on Wednesday, November 8th, 2023. I want to share something with you all about this podcast that's obvious to me and may be obvious to a lot of you, but still worth saying. I'm not a journalist. And I don't host a podcast about news and ideas because I think the news alone is worth talking about. I lead an organization, the Shalom Hartman Institute, which believes in some big ideas, ideas like pluralism, the Jewish people's aspiration for moral excellence, and the importance of trying to articulate a serious Judaism that sits at the intersection of the tradition we've inherited, the best philosophical thinking we come up with, and the challenges of the day. And this organization also believes that the Jewish community is better when those kinds of ideas, well articulated, when those ideas define the discourse of Jewish life. This podcast is not a set of conversations on disparate issues. It is somewhere between a soft nudge and a hard shove of Jewish leaders to think bigger and better, because Judaism and the Jewish people deserve it. You might think that a war is not the time for the kind of nuance that this podcast aspires for. We disagree. Even as wars polarize us into teams and into hard-nosed positions, they also represent moments of urgency and opportunity for our leaders that help us deepen our commitments, to help us understand all that's at stake right now, and to help us through a war, to be big and morally serious in it, and to enable us to emerge intact on the other end. Earlier in this war, during the first week of the war, I was afflicted by a particular fear about North American Judaism and Jewish leaders, and about our ability to lead our community through this time. I feared that because North American Judaism has rightly centered concerns for justice and compassion at the heart of our religious vocabulary, that precisely because we North American Jews seek to be known as Rachmanim, B'nai Rachmanim, a people characterized by compassion, that we weren't going to have the stomach for the fog of war, the complexity, and the sheer violence that was going to entail. Whatever solidarity emerged on October 7th about the horrors that Hamas perpetrated on the people of Israel, and there was, in fact, a lot of solidarity, I feared would quickly fade into squeamishness about the inevitability of the Israeli military response. I suppose I feared this would happen in part because this characteristic of compassion, which is extended universally, is an admirable trait of North American Judaism. But I also feared it because I'm not sure that North American Jews really know or have internalized enough a different strand of the Jewish tradition and condition, the Torah of power and self-preservation that is so deeply and intimately connected to Zionism. Even many Zionist Jews over here don't really know what to do with power. We're the product of an environment of Christian hegemony, with its skepticism of empire, its embrace of martyrdom, its message of turning the other cheek. Meanwhile, we're also diaspora Jews. We're heirs to a rabbinic tradition which was deeply skeptical of the violent overreaches of the Hasmonean kingdom, a rabbinic tradition which pivoted our destiny away from sovereignty over land and people 
and into the intimacy of the synagogue and the study hall, from material homeland to what the British anti-Zionist literary critic George Steiner called our homeland, the text. In other words, for diaspora Jews to be skeptical about a Torah of power is not because we're lightweights. You can read the Jewish tradition honestly and come to pacifistic conclusions. And even those of us who are not pacifists, we know to hold in check the grotesque militancy of the book of Joshua. We know to attenuate the genocidal fervor that comes with trying to map our obligations to kill Amalek unto real people. We know that messianism is a lot better when we talk about it as a dream that we hold, in which the world that we live in is aligned with the world we imagine, a world of peace and justice for everybody, more than when we talk about messianism as the discourse of fundamentalist militants seeking to remake the world order in their image. So the middle ground position that many of us try to hold as liberal Zionists, as old school religious Zionists, as realists, is one that seeks to extract a Torah of legitimacy of power from our tradition because the world we live in is not the same as the diaspora past and because we're awakened by the story of Zionism to rethink what it means to live in Jewish time. And we feel ourselves obligated both to take power seriously now and also to be the people in the world who use those constraints offered by our tradition and by our moral consciousness to make sure that power becomes an instrument and not an ideology. This is really hard to do for normal people. It is urgent and a holy mission and maybe impossible for a nation state. So because of all of this, early in the war and fearing what would come, I wrote a piece in the foreword arguing that we diaspora Jews should embrace the normative position held by Israelis that the war that they're fighting is a legitimate war, in the technical parlance, a just war, and that we, in turn, are bidden to support them in that fight. The fact that it is a just war, in turn, doesn't exonerate Israel to do whatever it wants in that war. The opposite is true, in fact. The legitimacy of the fight creates a huge set of expectations, what we call the ethics of war, which is actual technical vocabulary, not a throwaway phrase, and that for diaspora Jews to be good allies, we should be concentrating our attention and, if necessary, our criticism on whether or not Israel is fighting a just war justly. I was really encouraged by the reception of that piece that I wrote. Only a small percentage of the Jewish community today opposes the Israeli military response and has opposed it from the get-go. I suspect that's either because they reject the ethics of war tradition or because, I think this is probably more accurate, they were predisposed to oppose the Israeli response under any circumstance. But I've heard from an enormous amount of people in recent weeks that they need more. They need to better understand this tradition. They need more guidance in support in understanding a Jewish Torah of power. They need to understand how to read a more complex and more painful news cycle with now thousands of Palestinians dead. They need to know how to parse between difficult but legitimate military decisions and potential military overreaches. They need to know when and how to criticize. They need to figure out how to stay in the gray. That's the prompt for today's episode, that we find language and expertise to be serious moral people during an impossible time, nothing less. I'm joined on the subject by the best person out there on this topic. Dr. Tal Becker is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, where we get to work together almost for, what, a dozen years now on the iEngage project. 
Separately, he serves as the legal advisor of the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs and is a veteran member of successive Israeli peace negotiation teams. Tal sits daily at the intersection between the realia of running a state and a military and the world of ideas, whether those ideas are Jewish, legal, or philosophical, those kinds of ideas that inform statecraft and in turn inform how modern Jews should think about statecraft. And I'm thrilled that he's joining me today to offer some guidance and wise interpretation about this moment in Jewish history. Tal, thanks for being here. Let's start with an easy question. The ethics of war divides into two categories. Ethics of war is the war legitimate, and then ethics in war. I want to start with that first. As I said, right away it became clear to me and to many Israelis that this is a just war. Maybe you could start by kind of mapping out what are the criteria that we use to assess why something is called a just war and why Israel believes that this war that it's fighting against Hamas and Gaza falls into those criteria. Well, thanks, Yehuda, and it's uh, good to be with you, even though the circumstances are not are not great. I'm tempted to first respond as a lawyer because it's hard for me to escape that. The law thinks about going to war, what it calls jus ad bellum, the law of going to war, when you are subjected, for example, to an armed attack, and jus in bello, the law in war. What are the kind of rules and principles that guide you in war? Technically speaking, Israel has been in an armed conflict, in a war, effectively, with Hamas for many years. It is not that October 7th triggered that question, is there a just war or not? Because we have practically been dealing with terrorist groups such as Hamas and, and Palestinian Islamic Jihad for years now. So at the first level, from a kind of legal perspective, the question of is this a just war doesn't come up because we're already in one. The question of responding to the brutality and savagery of Hamas in accordance with the laws of war does come up and is important. If I kind of zoom out from the more technical legal question, my first instinct is to say to you, in a similar way, I feel that Russia is seeking to prevent Ukraine from being a part of a new and peaceful Europe. Iran and its proxies are seeking to prevent Israel and moderate Arab countries from creating a Middle East of coexistence between Jews and Muslims. And the way they're seeking to do so is by absolute evil. You know, you were talking about the importance of power in the Jewish tradition, even though it, we need to be careful about not deifying that power. Power is, of course, a force for good in the world, but it is also a recognition that there is evil in the world that needs to be confronted. We saw that evil on October 7th. There isn't a path towards a peaceful Middle East that doesn't involve defeating the enemies of peace, that doesn't involve taking away the capabilities of those who are trying to prevent coexistence from ever being possible. And at that very basic sense, uh, this is the most legitimate of actions. So one of the narratives that I've heard used maybe by Israeli officials, maybe by spokespeople, is there was, in fact, a ceasefire in the midst of a war with Hamas, and that effectively to call for a ceasefire now is to fail to acknowledge that there was a state of a ceasefire and Hamas violated the ceasefire with his act of war. So I, is that the official story? And I guess I want to do a bigger and in some ways more companion piece. One of the things that's most confusing to me personally is that I know we are meant to refer to Hamas as a terror organization. Hamas is also the governing power 
of Gaza, Hamas is also has an army of what is the estimate 30,000 soldiers. But I feel that I'm doing something wrong when I refer to it as Hamas declaring an act of war that breaks a ceasefire with its army because I'm still supposed to refer to it as a terror group. Do you see the category confusion that then makes me wonder, like, are we fighting a war or trying to suppress terror within the borders of Israel? Yeah, I mean, maybe just to your first point, I hear the talking point, there was a ceasefire on October 6th at some point. I think that's designed really to show that Hamas triggered this current instigation of hostilities. Technically, to call it a ceasefire, I think, is mistaken legally beforehand. And the bigger point, of course, is I think the immorality, in my view, of demanding a ceasefire now that would essentially leave Hamas with the capacity to continue to murder Israelis and to endanger Palestinian citizens is deeply problematic. And that's the context in which that comes. I mean, you're right that theoretically Hamas is a complicated kind of creature. It is a political movement as well as a terrorist organization. But it has demonstrated, and in a way I think some Israelis were under the illusion that somehow a cost-benefit game taking advantage of their political role might restrain their terrorist objectives. That has been proved to be a false assumption. They are fundamentally a genocidal terrorist organization who have abused the fact that they have control of Gaza in order to build what is the most concentrated terrorist base in modern history and to use their own civilians, seeing those civilians as expendable and as human shields, as a way in which they can protect themselves while targeting Israel. So yes, there's a lot of confusion there, but I think you've got to move that away. In the old days, we used to think of terrorists as kind of this ragtag group, maybe not completely organized. We, you know, with Hezbollah and Hamas and others, frankly, ISIS as well, we have to come to think of terrorists as having the same capacity as armies, essentially, even if they don't have the legitimacy of armies because of their complete disdain, both for the law and for human life, even in war. This is an absurd theoretical question. So you can just tell me it's an absurd theoretical question. But to this distinction between a terror group and an army, had Hamas on October 7th merely, quote-unquote, disabled Israeli surveillance, smashed through the border, and killed Israeli soldiers, would that represent a quote-unquote, legitimate military operation in ways that then got compromised by the fact that they indiscriminately killed, raped, and, and took hostage hundreds of Israelis. Yeah, again, I don't want to get too legalistic about it, but I'll just say Hamas is, in the way that it's organized, in its complete disdain for the core rules of the laws of war, even when it targets soldiers, does not have the legitimacy to do so. It's a, I think that's the defining element of a terrorist organization. It is not a legitimate combatant force. And it's not a legitimate combatant force for lots of reasons. One, because of its ideology and its structure, it fails to distinguish itself from the civilian population. It is systematically violates the laws of war. And the fact that a given operation targeted military and not civilians wouldn't, I think, change that fundamental definition. So then it goes back to my first question, which is, if it's not actually a legitimate fighting force by virtue of a terror organization, does the category of fighting a just war against it even apply? Or are we in a different 
plan it all together. We can get to the question of what it means to actually fight a war where there's a civilian population. That's where the ethics of war tradition becomes really important. But is it even a useful term or did I miss it completely to refer to this as a just war? If I don't even need to use the category of just war, I'm essentially just trying to defeat terrorists, which is on its prima facie something that civilized countries should do. This is a group that is fundamentally illegitimate to its core. So that language of war as if there are two combatant forces which have some measure of legitimacy is part of the problem, I think, in the category. This is something that I've felt in some of the language that's been used about this. You know, any kind of moral equivalence between Israel and Hamas is simply repugnant. It's not as if you have two combatant forces on the battlefield, some are doing this and some are doing that. No. Fundamentally, Hamas per se is illegitimate. Its entire agenda, mode of operandi, rejection of the law, everything about it is problematic. And as a result of that, I think some of those classic categories miss the moral chasm between Israel defending itself, obligated to do so in accordance with the law of war, but fighting essentially what is a criminal terrorist entity that doesn't have the legitimacy to be in this fight in the first place. Okay, so there is a little bit of a danger, though. Illegitimate is a good word in this context. Evil is a complicated word in this context because evil emerges out of theological vocabulary. And we've already seen a number of Israeli public officials and others who have channeled theological vocabulary for a moment like this to make ultimately theological threats about eradicating evil, channeling Amalek, which I think is an incredibly dangerous thing to do right now. So what caution do you think the state of Israel needs to exercise around making very clear that the elimination of terror is not engaging in a theological battle, but is actually doing something that is essential for an, any sovereign nation state to do? Yeah, I mean, I think Israel's military and political leadership has made it clear, and like any country, in the face of the ongoing threat and attacks we have, we have a right and an obligation to defend our citizens and our territory. But that's what this is about. This is about taking away the capacity of an organization that is threatening and killing Israelis and endangering Palestinians, and in a broader sense, a fundamental obstacle to the capacity of even imagining coexistence, defending against that threat. The language is not of revenge. And while Hamas perpetrated evil, this isn't a theological battle. This is a classic case of a state having the responsibility and the right to defend itself against slaughter of its citizens and the taking of hostages. And I think, um, you know, that's very well within the bounds of what legal categories uh, talk about in this context, not unlike the response to 9-11 or the response to ISIS in Mosul and Raqqa. States have an obligation, the first obligation, to protect their citizens from this kind of attack and threat. The thing that makes this most impossible is that not only is Hamas a illegitimate enemy, they are a profoundly immoral enemy, as manifest not only in what they did on October 7th, but by the way that they are engaged in combat with Israel today. So just as two obvious examples, in war, you are meant to allow third-party neutral forces to visit hostages. Hamas does not allow the Red Cross to cross in from the border to actually visit the hostages. That's just one incredibly crude example. A second example is the news reports that Hamas has prevented its civilians from leaving the areas that Israel is attacking, or in one reported case, I don't know whether it's accurate or not, was in fact shooting 
at its civilians who were fleeing to the south. So Israel is faced with the challenge of fighting a war against an enemy that refuses to abide by the rules of war. Now, I'll also say, Tal, this is something you've taught about for years. The immorality of the other does not shape the moral position of the self. You don't get to be dragged down by that. Talk to me a little bit about how the state of Israel approaches fighting an immoral enemy while it's trying to preserve its moral sensibilities. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, the first thing to say is that despite the fact that Hamas disdains the law in the same way that it disdains human life, that does not absolve us of our obligation to live up to the principles of the law of armed conflict as we are committed to. Maintaining our humanity in the face of that inhumanity is, in my view, critical. It's even, in a way, what we're fighting for. It's, in a way, what this whole thing is about. Is the Middle East going to be shaped by that kind of barbarism? Or are we able, even in the face of that evil, to demonstrate a commitment to the moral use of power? At the same time, you know, as often is said, the law is not a suicide pact. The law applied in the context of that immorality of Hamas has to be relevant to the challenge. It can't be this kind of theoretical construct that in fact doesn't allow you to defend yourself. And maybe I'll touch on a few kind of core principles. It'll take me a second, but, the, mm -hmm. but without getting too legalistic, I will say there are kind of four big things, four big principles in the law of armed conflict that are particularly relevant in this context. One is the principle of distinction. The second is the principle of proportionality. The third is precaution. And the fourth is, what are your humanitarian obligations in the context of this kind of armed conflict? Every one of those four principles is challenged by the strategy of Hamas, which is effectively seeking to maximize civilian harm to its own population, not just to Israelis, in the hope, and this is one of the most sinister elements of it, in the hope that the international community will spend its time condemning Israel for those civilian casualties rather than Hamas's strategy. So let's go through them one at a time. The principle of distinction fundamentally means that you can only target military targets, not civilians or civilian objects. And that Israel has made clear that it's committed to that principle. It is targeting Hamas, not the civilian population. The problem, of course, is that Hamas is so deeply and thoroughly embedded throughout the civilian population that the classic definition of military objects in this sense is different. Under the laws of war, a civilian object, a mosque, a hospital, a civilian building can become a legitimate military object if it is being used for military purposes. What's more than that, Hamas doesn't distinguish itself very often between combatants and civilians. So a civilian there can be a civilian taking direct part in the hostilities. There were civilians who took part on October 7th and, and today, of course. And there are Hamas fighters who are dressed as if they are civilians. So the challenge from an Israeli perspective is that you have to make sure you're targeting only Hamas, even though they're embedded, their tunnel network is so extensive. I don't think people fully appreciate how extensive that network is. We're talking about hundreds of kilometers of tunnels with their hubs under hospitals. And so the result of that is that even if a civilian object is targeted or a seeming civilian object is targeted or a seeming civilian is targeted, you can't conclude that it's unlawful because of that. That task of being able to identify 
whether a civilian object is being used for military purpose is a real challenge. But the law creates that space. This is one of the problems I felt, Yehuda, in a lot of the discussion around the law here and the morality here. You have to get your law right and you have to get your facts right. If you're not accurate on the law or accurate on the facts, you don't know what you're talking about. So as far as the law is concerned, a civilian object is not always a civilian object. But the principle of distinction is critical and Israel has to uphold it in that context. Proportionality. There's been so much misunderstanding about proportionality. I'll say something a little bit less legal here, but in a broad sense, proportionality is not tit for tat. Proportionality is about using that amount of force which is necessary to neutralize the threat that you're facing. And the threat we're facing here is immense. It's not just the Hamas threat and its ongoing efforts to infiltrate and murder Israelis and the constant indiscriminate rocket fire. There's the threat of Hezbollah, which is a massively sophisticated terrorist organization. There are other fronts in the Houthis in Yemen and in Syria, and of course there's Iran. So the scope of the threat we're dealing with, you know, 9-11 multiple times over, is something that's relevant in understanding the proportionality of Israel's response writ large. In more specific terms, proportionality in the law of war means that before you can target a legitimate military target, there is another thing you have to do, and that is to assess whether the expected civilian harm from your attack is excessive in relation to the anticipated military advantage. Now, that sounds a little bit technical, but that's what the law of a proportionality is. Is your expected harm excessive in relation to military advantage? Let's notice a few things about that. First of all, it is a conduct-oriented test, not a result-oriented test. We're talking about expected Mm -hmm. and anticipated. So what that means is the commander needs to act reasonably in making that assessment. It means also that the sheer fact that there are civilian casualties And that's always going to be tragic, that there are civilian casualties, doesn't tell you a lot about whether the attack itself was disproportionate or not, because you will need to have known what the information the commander had at the time and whether they made a reasonable assessment of military advantage versus anticipated harm. The second factor is the military advantage factor. Israel is fighting to remove Hamas's military capabilities. It has forces on the ground. And the military advantage here is significant from an action that the most public won't be able to see it. So if proportionality is going to be real, and if people are going to be serious about analyzing it, you can't make a definitive statement. You can't make a rush to judgment just because you see civilian harm. You need to be more careful about that. And there's a third element, precaution. Precaution means that Before you target, and even before you do a proportionality assessment, you need to take those measures that are feasible to mitigate civilian harm. And that can be done in several ways, in the choice of munitions, sometimes in the choice of the time of an attack, and of course, in the act of advance warning where that's feasible. It's not always feasible, right? If you're targeting a Hamas militant, you're not going to give them advance warning that you're going to attack so that they can disappear into a tunnel. But there are times. Now, in this particular war, one of the key examples of this is the Israeli call to temporarily evacuate northern Gaza. That is an act designed to minimize civilian harm. Now, Israel took that at great risk. It essentially signaled to Hamas where we are going to operate 
and gave them time to booby trap buildings and so on. But we did it anyway because of the commitment to mitigate civilian harm. I've talked too much, so we'll do the humanitarian stuff maybe separately. On each of those three, it's not just that Israel needs to operate accordingly, but the context is critical. Israel is operating against an enemy that on every one of those is trying to maximize civilian harm. Let's take precaution. Hamas is forcibly, as you mentioned, Yoda, trying to prevent civilians from evacuating areas of hostilities. So when an observer is looking at this situation, it isn't enough to say, wow, Israel really needs to be careful here. If you don't widen your lens and put responsibility on Hamas, you still have to hold Israel to its obligations, but put responsibility on Hamas for trying to kill as many Palestinian civilians as possible, you haven't done a moral assessment of what's going on. What you've done is rewarded Hamas for that strategy. And the same with the use of civilian objects. It's been astonishing to me, for example, how much concern we have heard from international actors about hospitals and the risk that hospitals might be targeted by Israel because they're used as terrorist hubs. I'm yet to hear one condemnation of the very fact that Hamas has turned these hospitals into bases for military operations. That's how we got to this problem in the first place. And if you don't call that out in the context of trying to look at this morally, what you're doing is allowing Hamas to flip the narrative. Again, that doesn't mean that Israel doesn't have obligations, but it does mean that if you lose the context in which Israel is trying to fulfill those obligations, you're liable to endanger more civilians because you're rewarding the Hamas strategy. Okay, I I do have, in fact, a thousand questions, so we're going to peel back a bunch of what you said because this... And they're not in any particular order. But because you made a distinction between the intention and the result, which I think is essential to what you're talking about, I have an intention of trying to reduce the amount of civilian casualties, and I've made a strategic military decision to move forward on X, trying to reduce the number of casualties. That's what I'm supposed to be looking at as opposed to what actually happened as a result. However, (laughs) number one, who ultimately makes that decision? What does the chain of command look like in that decision-making? Because one would imagine if it's happening on a low military level, you know, random soldier makes decision X, what makes that particular set of decisions justifiable? But the further that it moves up the chain of command, it makes it essentially impossible for Israel to prosecute a war that's happening in real time. Let me start with that. So I think it's critical to know that the IDF has integrated the laws of war throughout the military. It is part of training. It is part of the teaching. It is part of operational decisions. It's part of targeting decisions. When you're talking about targeting decisions that are made in advance, there is a very, very rigorous process of going through this analysis. There's intelligence. There are lawyers throughout this system giving advice to make sure that you do your best to live up to these principles and you're committed to them. That's not always possible in a ground operation or on the ground. There isn't you know, a lawyer whispering in the ear of every single soldier on the ground in Gaza. And frankly, no military in the world operates uh, in that way. Israel's military and the way in which it is committed to the law of armed conflict is highly respected amongst Western countries in this respect. But those commanders and those soldiers have been trained to make that calculation. Now, Israel has a very serious mechanism for investigating 
after action investigations and a, what's called a, a fact-finding assessment mechanism that in incidents that are questionable or that there's an allegation of misconduct and investigation takes place, the attorney general, there's not just the military advocate general's call, which is independent. It's not subject to the chain of command. It is independent from military commanders. There's also the attorney general that has oversight and gives advice to the cabinet and the government. And there's also the Supreme Court, which even during hostilities, hears petitions. So there's an entire mechanism to review whether those decisions were made effectively. And there is the integration of these principles throughout the system. When it's possible, the decision is made in a rigorous fashion, very methodologically sound. And when it's not, when you're on the ground and as soldiers are today and they're being fired at from a building or something, their training is meant to give them that capacity, but there's a capacity to examine that if needed. Okay. However, what this leaves us with is, like I know the state of Israel and the IDF don't care about the opinion of Yehuda Kurtzer, but if I'm watching, right, and X incident takes place, even if I believe that Israel has a particular intention of why it has identified that this civilian apartment building is actually a Hamas target, the result is that the collapse of that apartment building kills 24 members of a particular family. What you're expecting of international observers, friends of Israel or critics of Israel, to do is to basically trust you, right? <laughs> to basically say, we did everything right, but I can't really show you my work because you can't in real time demonstrate why something is or isn't a military target. You can't really know. And the results oftentimes speak louder than the intention. Is that what it ultimately comes down to? And what is the reason why the international community, American Jews, et cetera, should be effectively asked, trust us, we're doing it by the book? Yoda, war is tragic and chaotic. There isn't a military in the world that living up to the laws of armed conflict doesn't face the challenge that you described. It can't in real time share its intelligence. It can't tell a story in advance, and we saw that with other militaries. It's tough in that respect, yes? Part of the problem here, which is a kind of a good problem, I guess, is that not enough people know what war is like, you know? Not enough people know that reality. But the reality of war is that the armies do their best to live up to these principles. And I think Israel can give many, many examples from past rounds and from the present rounds where it is doing so. And yes, the results can sometimes be tragic. But again, the, the first address for the tragedy of those results is the Hamas strategy, first of all. Then there's a question. The question is, did in this particular incident Israel live up to those principles, which are conduct principles? And yes, there's an element of saying, yes, Israel is an army committed to the laws of war. You know, this is one of the things that kind of drives me crazy about some of the criticism. If Israel wanted to engage in the indiscriminate targeting of civilians, we've been in this war for a month now, does it not have the firepower to do it? Does an army that does that give three weeks precautions to evacuate the north? And on and on and on, does it risk its troops in the way that Israel does? So there isn't, in my view, a coherence to the rush to judgment that there is a kind of indiscriminate. That doesn't mean that mistakes can't happen. That doesn't mean there might not be conduct that needs to be examined. But the way Israel is conducting itself and making clear, and if you look at sometimes the uh, presentations of the IDF spokesperson where he shows a video 
This is why we targeted. This morning, for example, I think the IDF spokesperson released a video of an example where we canceled an attack because the drone and the observers saw too many civilians there and we canceled it. Yeah, it's hard to prove it in real time. It's just not a feasible expectation. And we do the best in the circumstances of war, which are brutal, chaotic, and tragic. One variable that clearly has influenced, I'm not in these rooms, has influenced the way in which Israel's prosecuting this war has been certainly the relationship with the Americans. It feels obvious to an observer from afar that Israel had first announced a 24-hour window of time for Gazan civilians to evacuate. The Americans seem to have gotten involved and that extended well beyond 24 hours. I see you're shaking your head, so you're going to tell me why that story is wrong. There's a similar story reported in the Times of Israel, which said that the Biden administration was trying to pressure Israel to use smaller bombs in order to reduce civilian casualties, and Israel was resisting. Uh, If you could let us into that dialogue a little bit, because what that oftentimes suggests to outside readers is, okay, Israel is trying, but maybe they need to be pressured to try harder. And I don't think that's the story that you would want to be out there. Well, first, I'm not going to get to operational details of these conversations. I'm not involved in most of them, and, and even if I were, I wouldn't share it with you. What I want to go back to is there's no law without the facts, right? And I know this is very frustrating, but it's very hard to know the facts. There was no 24-hour deadline. That was something that the UN put out there that was not done by the IDF. And in practice, there was a tremendous amount of time given without any pressure by anybody with respect to that, to the best of my understanding, but certainly on the 24 hours is something I I checked myself and know. We're facing a war, not just where it's really hard to know the facts because it's, we're in the midst of hostilities, it's dynamic and complex and everybody wants to tell their story. We literally are facing an enemy that is full-time fabricating the facts, right? If Hamas massacred 1,400 people in cold blood, it's not going to care about whether it's reporting accurately on how many people were killed and who was killed and so on. And I'm sure people have seen those fabrications. It's very frustrating for an observer. I get it. But it's really hard to say, well, I know that this happened and therefore I've reached this conclusion. You don't know. And if you're relying on Hamas, you definitely don't know. I mean, this was shared with me by someone who's very critical inside the media world, very critical of the media. He said, you know, if you look carefully at all of the media coverage, you will never see a Hamas fighter on video. You will never see them. So even all of the footage in Gaza pretends as though Hamas is completely invisible, which they are, partly because they're controlling the coverage. So I guess maybe it's a dumb question, but like, how do I look at any of this stuff? I mean, it was clear like the hospital bombing example was a great example of the perversity of the media coverage, the fact that media is actually participating and being shaped by the biases of journalists as well as by Hamas. But like, am I supposed to not think about the number right now from the Gaza Ministry of Health, which is Hamas, is 10,000 people are dead in Gaza. Do I believe that number? Do I not believe that number? They don't tell you how many of those are combatants, how many of those are actually civilians. And what I'm scared of, Tal, is that when I'm told it's a fog of war and you don't know anything, you're basically saying to me, stop being compassionate. Yeah. No. Well, first of all, you certainly don't rely on Hamas as a source, and people who are subject to Hamas's control or intimidation are also not uh, valuable sources. I'm going to say something a little naive, but frankly, if you want to be serious about being an observer and reaching judgment here, you have to be very cautious and circumspect. You can say what are the principles that apply. You can express concern. 
but reaching a conclusion. Now, this is a little different. On October 7th, right, Hamas celebrated the fact that it massacred and tortured civilians and it took hostages. These are not complicated things. When it comes to Israel's conduct, is it doing this targeting correctly? Is the proportion and so on? These kind of questions are questions of a different order. And frankly, if you're a serious person, no, you cannot reach a conclusion about it. There is evidence that Israel is trying to act according to this, but to draw conclusions is hard. Now, in a social media age, I can imagine that's so frustrating. People during the judicial reform were experts on constitutional law. During the Iran negotiations became experts on centrifuges. And now everybody's an expert on whether or not a, a violation of the laws of war has taken place. It's just not serious. But to your second point, does it mean you can't have compassion? Of course not. We have to have compassion. Every Palestinian civilian killed here is an absolute tragedy. But it's a tragedy produced first and foremost by a Hamas strategy that has spent the last 16 years taking aid and resources that were designated to that civilian population to make that civilian population be effectively their shield in targeting Israel and Israel citizens. That doesn't mean that even in an Israeli attack where there are civilian casualties, we have to have compassion for that civilian as well. And it's critical for us to have that compassion. We are the Jewish people. We have been victims of unbridled uses of power. We cannot in this moment embrace the unbridled use of power. But we have to at the same time have the tools to face an enemy that is this cruel. So we have to mix our compassion with an absolute determination to make sure that this enemy no longer has the capacity to endanger Israeli or Palestinian life. And that's going to be a tragic process. 240 hostages were taken by Hamas into Gaza, I believe, uh, citizens of 33 different countries. It's actually, even if that was the only thing that happened, it is one of the worst, most blatant human rights violations that we've seen in the globe in an incredibly long time. There's a very strange dimension of the story, which is why it's not the biggest story in the world, actually. I think it's the most American hostages taken since 1978 in Iran. I mean, it's bizarre that it's not the front page story every single day in every American newspaper. To what extent and how does rescuing the hostages factor into the difficult military decisions that the state of Israel has to make? And I mean that on two fronts. You know, it's not the primary mission. The primary mission is dismantling and defeating Hamas, but also since they probably are burying the hostages within the same infrastructure that they are located, Israel risks prosecuting a war and ultimately killing its own civilians. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I'm pretty restricted in what I can say. I, I will say we have two core objectives. One is to rescue the hostages, and the second is to defeat Hamas. We believe that significant military pressure on Hamas and Israeli ground operations is the best chance to rescue the hostages. We cannot reward hostage taking, but I can't go into the operational can't detail. Go into detail. Yeah. The taking of hostages is a blatant, very, very serious war crime. The things that happened on October 7th are crimes against humanity, and in my view, some of them amount to genocide because they had the intent to destroy or in whole or part a national group that's part of, you know, in furthering basically Hamas's genocidal agenda. 
every day that the hostages are held is a war crime. It is amazing to me. I'm watching the posters being ripped off in different places in America and other places in the world. I'm going to need therapy to kind of figure that out. What responsibility, I'm changing gears for a second, what responsibility does Israel bear around the whole question of humanitarian pause, humanitarian corridor, and are those humanitarian obligations increased by Israel as fighting this war because Israel already controls access to Gaza, Israel already has a siege over Gaza? Does that change in a normal war? What would the responsibilities be and what's different about Israel's particular responsibilities here, if anything? Okay, so I'm first going to be a bit loyally. The term siege is inappropriate here. There isn't a, a siege of Gaza in the siege. There's a blockade. I'm sorry, I should have used the word oh, blockade. Oh, even blockade, there is, there is a naval blockade. That's true, which is a legitimate uh, tool of war. Technically, a siege is also legitimate in warfare subject to certain conditions, but there isn't a siege at the moment. Gaza is not in, encircled. There is, of course, the border with Egypt as well. Let me just start by saying something about the legal obligation. Parties to a conflict are under an obligation to allow access of certain consignments of aid necessary for the survival of the population. In other words, they don't need to supply it themselves. They need to provide access to it given by third parties subject to a very important condition. And that condition is that that aid will not be diverted to the enemy and actually accrue to their advantage. Now, it's very hard to take seriously the uh, humanitarian challenge here without acknowledging that Hamas is stockpiling fuel and supplies that were intended for hospitals and the general civilian population. So when people say, for example, Israel needs to allow access to fuel, the first statement should be Hamas needs to release the fuel that it has stolen and hoarded away from its own population. If you don't do that, if the demand is just directed to Israel, what you're essentially saying to Israel is Israel is required to ensure that Hamas has the resources to continue to kill Israelis. So taking the humanitarian challenge properly means a demand on Hamas and a demand on Israel, not separating. It also means, I think, understanding fundamentally that the greatest humanitarian threat that the Palestinians of Gaza face is that they live under the rule of a genocidal terrorist organization that doesn't care if they live or die. If that's not part of the lens through which you're looking at this humanitarian challenge, I think you're missing it. Now, Israel is allowing increasing aid to come through, putting mechanisms in place to try to ensure that they aren't diverted to Hamas. One of the things that has been troubling for me on the humanitarian stuff is how much misinformation there is. And I, I just want to share a little bit about this. And let me give you an example. Water. 90% of Gaza's water is from Gaza itself. Israel only provides 10% of that water. And that water is flowing through two pipes to the south where Israel has increased the flow of water. And Israel has repaired those water pipes as Hamas has targeted them in different fire. Nine out of 10 electricity lines to Gaza from Israel were blown up by Hamas rockets. Nine out of 10 of them. 50% of Gaza's electricity is local. In the years preceding this war, Israel put in solar panels and alternative sources of energy for different important locations, sensitive places within Gaza. Knowing these facts is critical to understand what the dynamic is. That doesn't mean that there isn't a need to ensure that there is access to humanitarian supplies for the population. Israel does not wish harm to any Palestinian civilian. 
But it's so important in my mind to put these obligations in the context of the broader picture. You can't talk seriously about humanitarian assistance without understanding how Hamas is trying to minimize that humanitarian assistance and actually trying to hoard. And we we had Hamas steal fuel from UNRWA, for example, 24,000 liters, I believe. Hamas going to a hospital and physically taking the fuel. If you then just turn to Israel and say, hey, why isn't there this supply? You're just playing into Hamas's hands. You're being the kind of useful idiot of Hamas. And, and we have to avoid that at the same time that we have to show compassion and make sure as best as we can that the civilian population has humanitarian aid. I mean, that was, I felt, one of the darkly hilarious pieces of this war was when the UN announced that Hamas had stolen the fuel. They announced it on Twitter. And then a few hours later, they said, we apologize, that didn't happen. And you were like, yeah, I'm sure it didn't happen. I'm sure you didn't get threatened that, you know, they actually, for the first time, disclosed what had taken place and instead got threatened that they had to ultimately take that tweet down. Yeah, I I mean, that tells a whole story there, Yehuda. And it does, I think, from a broader perspective, tell you how dangerous moral assessments are when they are conducted in a kind of vacuum, when they don't look at at the broad picture. The moral assessment is always critical, but when it's selective and when it's narrow, it can actually turn into an immoral assessment. Let me ask you a different question that has been raised by critics of the war, which is about the day after. You know, Israel goes into this war without a plan for the day after. I found this a little bit frivolous because the day after not fighting the war is perhaps more dangerous for Israel and for Palestinians than fighting the war itself. But do you think that's a meaningful variable for a military, especially, you know, after a 50-year occupation of the West Bank, for people to say, I'm wary of the war because I'm wary that you don't actually have a plan and you're continuing to entrench yourself into a condition that's ultimately going to be worse? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that helps here is to think about the alternative, right? So what is the alternative to not prosecuting this war against Hamas? Is it a viable expectation of any country or of Israel after this to say, no, actually Hamas should remain in power? Now, a terrorist organization that has spent 16 years entrenching itself within Gaza is going to take serious effort to uproot, and it's going to take time. And the contours of what the day after will look like are also going to take time. It depends what the reality will be created afterwards and so on. I think you can come to some guiding principles about what we're hoping to achieve, But the first objective is to make sure that Hamas is not there. And then there are a series of questions. How do we create a situation where Palestinians are able to govern themselves, but not able to threaten Israel? That has a whole host of questions that need answering and a question about what partners we have in that effort. And that's going to take time. But I don't think that the idea that on October 8th, we were meant to already have a plan as to what the day after looked like seems to me just a bit of a frivolous thing. Right. I guess the fear, Tal, is as this is taking place, there are major political problems in Israel. There's a spike in settler violence in the West Bank against Palestinians. There is a dangerous crackdown against Palestinian citizens of Israel. And then you get these little windows, a tweet here and there. Uh, Yishai Fleischer is basically lighting a fire right now about reoccupation of Gaza, the rebuilding of settlements. It feels to me like Israel is fighting two existential wars right now, one against Hamas, which it must win, one against its demons, 
which it must win. And that's what I'm scared about. And that's where the day after thing becomes a source of profound concern. It's not just, okay, you don't have exactly know what's going to happen, but there are plenty of people who have very strong and really dangerous opinions of what they want to see happen on the other end. How do you think about that? How does the IDF think about it? Well, I mean, we're a democratic society where a lot of voices are heard, but that's not where the heart of decision-making is, right? That's not the decisions that are being made. And these voices are problematic, but they don't shape the operational decisions. And I think looking at that is important. In due course, Israel needs to be clear about what isn't the objective, not just what is the objective. And I expect that that will become clearer also in the days and weeks ahead. But articulating what this isn't is not less important than articulating what it is. It is about ensuring that Hamas and other terrorist groups can no longer threaten Israel from Gaza. It is not about some kind of goal to deny Palestinians the capacity to govern themselves and be at peace with Israel in a future we hope to create. Is there a role in some sense at the end of this for lovers of Israel, supporters of Israel to become wise critics? I mean, partly what the struggle is, if you're part of the message is the information that's being presented to you, you can't really believe that you kind of have to wait till the end of the war to figure out which decisions were ultimately good decisions, moral decisions, and which were bad. It leaves a lot of us feeling wanting that part of our job, actually, as members of the Jewish people is to be supportive critics. Is there a role for that right now? Or would the answer ultimately be, no, right now you just stand in wall-to-wall support, be character witnesses of the state of Israel, and we'll deal with the consequences later on? This just seems a hard posture for the Jewish people to take. Well, first of all, I will say one of my definitions of what being pro-Israel is about is that your default posture is not to assume the worst about Israel. Your default posture is to assume that when Israel says it's committed to the laws of war, and to conducting this war justly, that you say, yeah, I agree with that, and I I believe in that. I support that. Frankly, Yehuda, I think I might surprise you by what I'm going to say because of our Hartman conversations about this, but there is so much criticism out there today. This might not be a time for that to be the primary focus of Mm -hmm. people who care about Israel and its future. The Jewish people and the Jews of Israel have suffered a tremendous trauma here. And having compassion for both Israelis and Palestinians is important. Holding up the laws of war is important. But given the absolute onslaught of anti-Semitism, of the celebration of this massacre, of the denial that it even happened, maybe the first instinct is not quite now to be critical. Maybe the first instinct is compassion and solidarity and support. Yes, maybe a gentle reminder. I hear that. Concern. I hear that too. But if you're talking about the calibration of the volume here, given what's going on and given what's happening, I really feel like this is a moment where the healthy Jewish obsession with criticism can take a little bit of a backseat at this present moment. There'll be plenty of that. But right now, you know, I hate that term existential. I worry when we use it that we empower our enemies. Right, But it is obviously the single most important thing for us to rise to this occasion, rise to this occasion in terms of defending ourselves and rise to the moral challenge we have in terms of the enemy we face. And I I think a lot of Israeli Jews want to feel that from the Jewish world, not this kind of let me watch you and decide whether I think I can support you or not at this moment. It's not the time for that. And even those who have legitimate criticism of Israel 
you know, I feel like maybe just turn the volume on that down a notch, given what we're facing. Thanks so much for listening to our show. And special thanks to my guest this week, Tal Becker. Identity Crisis is produced by M. Lewis Gordon. Our executive producer is Maytal Friedman. And the show is produced with assistance from Sam Ballo and Tessa Zitter. This episode was edited by Gareth Hobbs at Silver Sound NYC. And our music is provided by SoCalled. For more ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute about what's unfolding right now, you can sign up for our newsletter in the show notes, or you can visit shalomhartman.org forward slash Israel at war. We're always looking for ideas of what to cover in future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear about or comments on this episode, you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can rate and review our show on iTunes to help more people find it. You can subscribe to our show everywhere podcasts are available. We'll see you next week, and thanks for listening.